Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The first reading can be found on page 543 in the Pew Bibles. Psalm 2, beginning at the first verse. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The second reading can be found on page 1173 and is taken from the book of Ephesians. Page 1173, Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 8. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Alison, very much. And why don't you turn back to Psalm 2, where you were just a moment ago. If you'd like to as well, there's some space just on the back of the blue sheet there, if you'd like to make notes. And even if you're not going to make notes, just have that somewhere you can see it. There are a few headings and some other verses and so on. That will help you as we go along. And when you're back at Psalm 2, shall we pray? Our Father, we're so grateful that you would speak to us. Thank you for this precious gift of the Bible. Thank you for the the miracle it is that you would make yourself known, even to people like us. And we pray that as we come to, uh, to look at, to learn from, to meditate on, to study your words, we pray that you would make us people um, who are quick to listen, quick to understand, and quick to obey. And pray that we might leave this place and knowing and loving valuing and treasuring Jesus all the more. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, on Tuesday this week, 
uh, the waiting was over, finally. Obviously, we'd all had our lives on hold, um, but on Tuesday this week, normality could return. We could all go back to sort of lesser secondary activities like going to work and looking after our children. The wait was finally over. It's a boy. Now, the birth of this new king uh, was greeted, wasn't it, with almost universally uh, positive interest and enthusiasm. I have watched on television this week um, hardened news reporters, just slightly gooey-eyed. I I literally watched um, a news anchor cracking open some champagne live on air. Now, the birth of any baby is wonderful news. This is clearly significant news for the nation as well. And on all of us, don't we, wish this lovely family all the best. But I've got to confess that the level of global excitement slightly took me by surprise. I did feel it got a bit silly when I turned on my TV to find that passers-by on the street in Singapore were being asked for their take on the news. And it left me asking, why? Why such an amount of positive interest and enthusiasm? Psalm 2 contains an equally surprising, equally shocking, yet entirely opposite response, one of conspiracy and rebellion and hatred towards a different king, God's anointed king, King Jesus. And the psalm begins with a similar question, why? Why? Look at verse 1 there. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. If you were here last week, um, you'll know that we've begun this series of summer psalms. And you'll know that we began last week in Psalm 1. And we found God's big idea in that psalm, that there are basically just two ways to live. For all that the world is is a big and interesting and diverse place, God says in Psalm 1 that there are basically just two ways to live, two paths through life, if you like. Look back at Psalm 1, just in case you weren't here. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither whatever he does prospers but on the other hand not so the wicked they are like chaff that the wind blows away therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish did you hear it on the one hand there's the way of the righteous whose delight in God's word, verse 2, leads to a fruitful life of blessing, verse 3. And on the other hand, there's the way of the wicked, whose delight in themselves leads to a futile life, and then to death, verse 6, and judgment, verse 5. For those people that Psalm 1 calls wicked, Psalm 2 goes even further. Brings us to the first heading, if you're following on the blue sheet. Depose the king. See, for those who walk in the way of the wicked, as Psalm 1 would put it, it's not merely a matter of loving themselves. It's not merely a matter of ignoring God. It's much more than that, much stronger than that. Psalm 2 says, quite shockingly, 
that those who walk in the way of the wicked hate God. And most especially, they hate his anointed king. Now, it's quite likely that this psalm, Psalm 2 that we've, we read before, was sung or said or used at least um, at the coronations of Israel's historic kings. Um, as they were installed, look at verse 6, on Zion, which is just another name for the hill on which the capital city of Jerusalem was built. And it's easy to see why I think this psalm would be appropriate for that kind of setting. You can imagine a king taking to his throne in the ancient world. I guess he'd be only too aware of the plots and the conspiracies and the threats of the kings of surrounding nations. And for the kings of Israel as well, who were supposed to be themselves little pictures of the godly leadership that Jesus would, that Jesus would ultimately provide. For them, I guess Psalm 2 would have served as a reminder of the power of God and the might of God and God's great commitment to his people Israel and not least to this newly anointed king. All that said, and like so many other psalms though, Psalm 2 is packed full of what you might call layers of meaning. And the early church understood this well. You'll see uh, just there on your handout, um, as they're praying, this is from Acts 4, this is a prayer of the early church. They quote from Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And they go on, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Psalm 2, and we'll see why in all kinds of ways, Psalm 2 is ultimately all about Jesus. And it's saying that those who walk in the way of the wicked, as Psalm 1 would put it, don't merely, hate, don't merely ignore God, and they hate God. And most especially, they hate his servant, his anointed king, Jesus. But why? Why? What kind of perverse logic is it that, that leads us to, to hate the very God who made us, who gives us life and breath and everything else? I think you see the answer there in verse 3. Have a look at that. They say, this is those who stand opposed to God, let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. See, in his words, God has shown us how to live. Remember back in Psalm 1, um, the, the one who led the righteous life loved God's word, his law. He meditated on it day and night. It made the simple wise. He knew it was good and brought blessing. That's why if you were to flick over a few pages but don't do it, in Psalm 19 you'd read these words. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart, and on it goes. See, but rather than loving and valuing and treasuring God and his words to us, we have this tendency to twist them. We call his good way of life restrictive. And we make the way of blessing out to be, well, a way of burden. See, we call his perfect laws petty rules. And we want to make the rules ourselves. We want, if I can put it this way, to make ourselves 
king. And so therefore we hate God, and most especially we hate his anointed king, Jesus. Think back, if you know it, to the book of Genesis. Think back to the Garden of Eden and to Adam and Eve as they were tempted by Satan with these words, again on your sheet. When you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. As an example, and I only use this example because I think we have so taken up inadvertently and used the language of Psalm 2. As an example, think about our attitude to sex as a culture. Sex, a perfect gift of God for husband, for wife, bringing intimacy, perhaps bringing children, a good gift, kindly placed in its right context by the one who, after all, made us and knows us and loves us for our good and, I guess, for the good of our society too. But we have called God's word on this matter restrictive, You can almost hear the language of Psalm 2 in what we said, can't you? Let us throw off the chains of oppression, we have said. Let us be liberated, we have said. And so we have become, as it were, our own kings of sex. But ours is a kingdom where lust and unfaithfulness and adultery hold sway. We throw off what we have considered to be the shackles, the chains of God's law, only to find ourselves horribly enslaved to our own selfishness. We are not good kings. We've been learning something similar, I think, in the book of James. If you've been with us the past few months, you'll know that um, James had a lot to say on this matter of God's word and how it brings freedom. Listen to this, James 1.25. The man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, He will be blessed in all he does. And if you're a Christian here, let let me say, if you think that by nature you're any better than this, or indeed, whatever your current views about Christianity, if you feel like hatred towards God is too harsh a description of you, look back at verse one and answer this question. Who is it that takes up a stand of rebellion against the laws. See it there? Nations and peoples, kings and rulers. I think the point is, everyone. So this psalm begins with that most shocking of assertions, that everyone by nature hates God and hates Jesus. But you might respond... Sounds a bit strong. I mean, ignore, sideline, maybe even reject as irrelevant, disagree with, but hate? We have a daughter, Morag and I, Ruth. Uh, we love her very much. And especially at the minute, she's two and a half, she's, she's totally dependent on us for everything. Um, every good thing she needs in life, food and shelter and learning and everything else, every good and loving thing uh, she relies on us for. And we do our best, at least, to provide it for her. It would be deeply hurtful, wouldn't it? And perhaps some of you have even experienced this from a child. It it would be deeply hurtful for her to accept from our hands all of the good and yet to cut herself off from us, to cease contact perhaps, to take all the good and to squander it in disobedient living. It would be deeply hurtful. And let me tell you that Morgan and I are far from perfect parents I think the Bible wants to say to us that 
that the heart of what it calls sin or wickedness, to use the psalmist's language, it isn't so much the breaking of this rule or of that rule. It isn't so much this thing you did or that thing you said, although doubtless our sin will be played out in a thousand and one practical ways. The heart of the matter is a personal rejection of the king, the king of the universe. And if I can put it this way, a claiming of his throne for myself. So that when God says, for example, do not lie, in the moment that I decide to lie, I am at that moment deciding that the almighty creator of the universe, the source of all goodness and all love, is wrong. I'm deciding at that moment that I am a better king than he is. And even in the most banal instance, that is a personal rejection of God himself. If you're not yet convinced, think about what happened when God himself came to earth. We've talked about how we've called God's word restrictive. Well, when Jesus came, the one described in John's gospel as the word of God, the fullest revelation of God, God on earth, come to show us what he's like. When Jesus arrived on the scene, what did the world do to him? Well, some followed him. Others despised him. Many were intrigued. But in the end, all deserted him, even the disciples. And he was brutally murdered by the very people he came to save and to serve. Now, I'm a Newcastle United fan, which is a bizarre, painful, and disappointing way to live your life. I was reading an article in the paper the other day, which was about the greatest um, FA Cup upsets of all time. And needless to say, we featured, and not in a positive way, um, Newcastle's 1972 defeat at the hands of the mighty non-league Hereford United was listed as, as one of the top 10 FA Cup upsets of all time how the mighty fall, and sadly that's an FA Cup trend that we've uh, continued in recent years as well. We love that kind of thing in sport, don't we? We love an upset, we love the underdog, we love it when the minnows take out the mighty. But as these earthly rulers set up their rebellion, as they take up their stand against God, there is no such upset, even vaguely on the cards here in Psalm 2. So as it were, come with me to the, to the other side of the story, to the heavenly war rooms, as it were, verse four. Will we find uh, panic, hurried discussion, frantic moving of troops? Well, no. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Did you notice this is not a threat that has even warranted the Lord God to stand up from his throne? You might think that the idea of a whole world in rebellion against God would somehow be a threat to him. Any conspiracy to overthrow the almighty creator of the universe, to throw out his good rules for life, to depose his anointed king, is laughable. It's as if the, the flea on the tail of my cat was trying to tell me what to do. So God laughs, verse 4, but the rebellion is still serious, verse 5. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. God has chosen and anointed and installed King Jesus, and he will not be moved by any trifling rebellion. It's interesting as well that the words that follow there in verse 7, what you might call the decree of installation, 
um, are also used about Jesus in the book of Acts again. You are my son, I have become your father. Now, of course, remember back to our other context. Those words would have been said to the historic kings of Israel too. They became sons in the sense of stepping into this great lineage of leaders, the lineage that would eventually lead to Christ himself. So as these words are said of Jesus, it's not that somehow he, the eternal son of God, only becomes that during his ministry on earth. It's not that at all. It's that he steps into this lineage as well picking up, as it were, the baton from the great line of Israel's historic kings who all ultimately failed to be the godly leader and saviour we need. It's as if at that moment God makes public what has always been known in the courts of heaven. Here is my son. And Jesus too, like those historic kings, was crowned, look at verse 6, on Zion, the holy hill. Although actually for for Jesus, it it was a little bit different. See, for Jesus, the the crowning, as it were, happens on a hill just outside of the city. See, and for Jesus, the crown pressed down upon his head. It's not one of shining gold, but one of piercing thorns. And as this newly crowned king takes to his throne, it... It's not, again, a seat of shining gold, but it's a cross of cruel wood. And as he's vindicated by his glorious resurrection from the dead and ascended and seated on high at the right hand of the Father, it's this anointed king that the nations rage against. And this, says God, is the powerful king installed, unmovable. This is the king, verse 8, look at it there, who now rules the nations. They are his inheritance, his possession, his to rule, his to judge. Verse 9, you will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. These nations who have dared to stand in opposition to God's anointed king. And so we reach verse 10. Therefore, therefore, And since the one who has the power and the right to rule and judge the nations is the one, the very one that the peoples of the earth have stood opposed against, verse 10, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. And then, and then from verse 11, something quite surprising, which brings us to our second point, if you're following along, kiss the king. Look there at verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you destroyed in your way for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in in him. The question is this. What do you do when you have wrongly started a fight that you can't win? The only course of action open to you then is to throw down your weapons and to beg for mercy. The only option open to you then is to call off your opposition and submit and serve. You seek asylum and protection and you plead for benevolent treatment 
from the true king. And the big question is this, does God show any mercy to those who have risen in rebellion against him? Does God show any mercy to you and I who have played our part in that conspiracy? The answer is yes. And when you see how, I think you ought to to weep for joy at, at the power and the wisdom and the kindness of God. See, in the very act of of installing, of crowning Jesus, that that we mentioned before, the the crown of thorns, the throne of the cross, the very point at which those who stood in opposition and rebellion to him thought they had won by getting rid of the king they hated, only to see him rise again to victory. Through those very events, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in the very process of God the Father establishing, installing, anointing his chosen king, who, remember, is the one appointed to judge those who have risen in rebellion. In those very events, God is doing something else too. He is making a way for those very same rebels, the very same who have rejected him, like you and I, who have set ourselves up as God's. He is making a way for you and I to throw down our weapons, to end the rebellion, to find forgiveness and reconciliation if we will only come to him, submit to him. As the psalmist puts it, kiss him, which is an act of glad submission to a new master. Then we will find, what does it say? Refuge then we will find refuge from his right anger. He will not then dash us to pieces like a piece of pottery. But there is just one thing more as well. Look there at verse 12. As if that weren't enough, those who take refuge in him are, look at it, blessed. It's almost as if we've come full circle, isn't it? Do you remember that language from Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who... See, if we only read Psalm 1, we might think that the book was closed on the wicked. They're like chaff, blown away, judged, sentenced, condemned, separated, dead. Psalm 2 shows us more and in more detail. Wonderfully, it shows us that for people like us, For people like you and me who have found ourselves walking, as it were, in the way of the wicked, there is a way back to the way of blessing. See, there are only two ways to live, but transfer is possible. So to end, if you're a Christian here tonight, someone who knows and loves and has submitted to King Jesus, let me say a few things to you on your sheet there. You ought to be encouraged by all you have in Christ. We had Ephesians 1 read because there's a chapter just packed full of the wonderful blessings. There's that word again, blessings. Benefits, privileges, wonderful things that we enjoy as children of God. 
Be encouraged by all you have in Christ. Secondly, love and and value God's word. It's a fruitful word, not a restrictive chain. Thirdly, kiss the sun repeatedly. You'll find, as I do, that even as you have had transfer, as it were, to the way of the righteous, your feet too often stray back onto the way of the wicked. Kiss the sun repeatedly. Come to him again and again. Submit to him again and again. Again and again, find forgiveness and kindness and help. And then fourthly, when you face opposition... And Jesus himself said that a servant is not above his master. If the world hated me, it will hate you also. But when you face opposition as a Christian, remember two things. Jesus reigns supreme, so don't be frightened. But also that he loves those opposing you. And he longs for them too to be reconciled. Or if you're here tonight and and you're not a Christian or you're not sure about what you believe... Thank you for being here. Let let me say to you seriously, will you see the futility and seriousness of your predicament? Will you come quickly and, as it were, kiss the sun, take refuge in him? Now, all the excitement over the royal baby really did take me by surprise. We all love a baby. It's a significant moment for our nation, and we all really do wish this lovely family well. But maybe it's just easy to be positive and excited about a new king whose rule and reign won't really affect our lives. See, on paper, those of us who live that long will be his subjects. But there's no real meaningful submission required. What he does, in many ways, won't really affect our autonomy. He won't really demand any change in our lives, but it's different with King Jesus. See, he requires us, he pleads with us to lay down our arms, stop the rebellion. What he wants for us is not the destruction that will result from our opposition to him. What he wants for us is the blessed life of Psalm 1, a fruitful and spiritually prosperous life, life found only in Jesus. Life found only in right submission to King Jesus. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Shall we pray? We praise you, Father, for the miracle of the gospel. That as Jesus died and was raised, in those very events, you made a way for us rebels to know you again, to throw down our weapons, to rightly submit to you and serve you. We thank you for that amazing kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.